0: thank you again choir for your ministry among us and uh, greetings to all of you here at Central Campus, those of you up in the chapel as well as those of you who are meeting in homes as part of our home church network and of course those of you who are meeting in uh, our various regionals uh, in Airdrie in Bridgeland and at the Crowfoot Center in the northwest part of Calgary. We're in a series in which we're uh, looking more deeply at who God is and what the Bible says about the nature and the character of our God. And in this message, I want to talk to you about our sovereign God. But first, would you stand as we dedicate our time to the Lord in prayer? <laughs> Heavenly Father, thank you for revealing yourself through the living Word, your Son, Jesus Christ. And Lord, also for revealing who you are in the written Word, the Holy Scriptures. Father, I ask that you would teach us today what it means to be in relationship with a God who is sovereign. Lord, I am fully aware that without you, this message is but words. I need you right now, not only in my life, I need you to strengthen me, Lord. But I also need you, Lord, to focus minds. I need you to soften and convict hearts through your Holy Spirit. And I pray that you would for your honor and glory, we pray. In the name of Jesus, amen. You may be seated. You know, we all have hopes and dreams. And we all desire for our hopes and dreams to become reality. And so we take control and we make our plans, hoping that the plans that we have will, in fact, become reality one day. And yet we know, as life unfolds, that we are not ultimately in control. We like to believe we are, but we're not. A tragedy, a death, a bad medical report, a betrayal can change everything. So who is in control? Am I the master of my own destiny? Or is God? If God is in control, can he be trusted when everything around me is falling apart? Well, how big, how great is your God. When we talk about the sovereignty of God, we're essentially asking, is God in control or not? To what extent is God involved in the affairs of the world? And to what extent is he involved in the affairs of my life and your life? Well, that's going to be the focus of this message. What does God's sovereignty entail? Well, to begin with, God's sovereignty means that he is in control. He is all-powerful, all-knowing. He is everywhere present. He is Lord and King of the universe. In First Chronicles chapter 29, King David praises the Lord saying, Yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power. You are exalted as head over all. You are the ruler of all things. Job, in his distress, said to the Lord, I know that you can do all things. No purpose of yours can be thwarted. Psalm 135 says, The Lord does whatever pleases him in the heavens and on the earth. God is in control of everything because he created everything. The law of gravity operates with unceasing certainty because God continuously wills for it to operate. Isaiah 40 verse 26 says the planets and the stars continue in their courses because he keeps them there. The Bible tells us that he constantly sustains or holds things together that he created, literally preventing the universe from blowing apart. Colossians 1.17 says, He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Furthermore, the Bible tells us that God is in control of our lives. In Acts 17, verse 25, it says, He himself give, gives all men life and breath and everything else. For in him we live and move and have our being. Without God, we would all be dead. Every heartbeat, every breath is a gift from God. He's fully aware of all that occurs. In Matthew chapter 10, verse 29, Jesus said that nothing escapes his eye. Not even a little sparrow that falls to the ground. He is in control. But furthermore, God's sovereignty means that he blesses who he wants to bless. If you have your Bibles with you, turn to Matthew chapter 20. In Matthew chapter 20, Jesus tells the story of a man who owns a vineyard that has grapes needing to be harvested. Now in those days, there was a lot of unemployment and people who were looking for work would often gather at the town square. And so this particular... Uh, Vineyard owner went off to the town square early in the morning, 6 o'clock in the morning. He hired uh, all the workers that were there. Those who signed up agreed to work a full 12-hour shift, a full 12-hour day for the fair price of a denarius. The landowner, he needs more help, and, and so he continues to hire workers throughout the day. He goes back to the town square at 9 o'clock. Then he's there at 12 noon. He goes there at 3 o'clock in the afternoon, hires some more workers. And even as late as 5 o'clock in the afternoon, an hour before uh, closing time, as it were, he hires some more workers. Now, the Levitical law required that the workers be paid at the end of every day because... In in that particular day, many of the workers would not have been able to feed themselves or their family without being paid at the end of a day. And so the owner goes to those who work just one hour. And to everyone's shock, he pays them a denarius, a full day's wages. And then he goes to those who work three hours followed by those who worked six, and then to those who worked nine. And again, he surprises everyone by paying each of these workers a denarius. Finally, as promised, he goes to those who worked the entire 12-hour shift. And as promised, he gives them a denarius as well. And Jesus goes on to say that those who worked the full 12 hours, they are furious. They're incensed that the owner would pay those who worked a mere hour the same amount of money as he would pay them who worked a full 12-hour shift. And so the owner, seeing this, um, he he approaches uh, the, the workers that worked all day and he asks them a couple of questions. He says, Is a denarius not a fair pay for a full day's work? And they kind of grumbled, but said, yeah, I guess so. And he says, did you not agree to work the full 12-hour shift for a denarius? Well, uh, yeah, I guess so, yeah. So then, why are you upset? Clearly, he said, you are not upset because you got less than you deserved. I think you're upset because I gave these other workers over here more than they deserved. And you know what? You're right. I did give them more than they deserve. But remember, it's my vineyard and it's my money. And I am free to do with my money as I please. And so if I want to be generous with them, that is my prerogative i did not treat you unjustly i did not treat you unfairly i simply extended grace and blessing to these workers over here now you see there's something in us that reacts to that because we grew up in a in, in a time in a, in a way where our Um, efforts were rewarded. And we learned in time that if you wanted to um, receive a reward, you needed to work for it. And we developed our sense of fairness around that. And so when we hear something like this, it causes us to question the justice and the fairness of God. We find ourselves asking God questions uh, like, why did you give um, my friend... A greater talent than you gave me. Or we find ourselves saying, why did you give my neighbor more riches than you gave me? Or my sibling better health than you gave me? Well, I want you to turn now to Romans chapter 9, which is one of the greatest chapters on this subject of the sovereignty of God. In verse 20, the Apostle Paul gives an answer to those questions. This is what he says, But who are you, O man, to talk back to God? Shall what is formed say to him who formed it, Why did you make me like this? Does not the potter have the right to make out of the same lump of clay... Some pottery for noble purposes and some for common use. And Paul is saying two things here. First of all, he says God can bless whoever he wants to bless. He doesn't need to explain himself to anyone any differently than a potter doesn't have to explain why he uses half a lump of clay to make a vase, a beautiful vase for the kitchen, and then uses the other half of clump of clay to make a ordinary vase for, um, for the, the washroom or some other room. But secondly, and more importantly, what Paul is saying here is that even though God is free to bless whomever he wishes to, he doesn't do so flippantly. No, in the same way that a potter makes pottery for a purpose, God blesses us uniquely and differently For a purpose. It's not that God says. I love you more. Than this person over here. And so I'm going to give you more talents. Or I'm going to gift you more. No he loves us all the same. But he has a different purpose or role. For each of us. In Genesis chapter 12. God chose Abraham. And his descendants. To be his representatives in the world and to carry out his mission, which he is so passionate about. And that is to bring all people back in right relationship with himself. He chose them not because they were morally better or more deserving than any other people group. No, he, he could have chosen any people group to carry out his mission. He simply chose Abraham and his descendants, which was his prerogative. No differently than when you go into a store. And you have three different um, items of the same product. Just three different packaging. And you choose one of them. Well later God chose Isaac instead of Ishmael. Then he chose Jacob instead of Esau. Not because he loved them more. No, he chose. He, the scriptures say he predestined these individuals to accomplish a purpose. And folks, it's no different today. God chooses and blesses and gifts people to be his channels of love and influence in the lives of people who need the Lord. God's gifted me to impact people and he's gifted each of you to reach other people that I could never reach. He's given us different talents. He's diff- given us different giftings and circumstances in life for a purpose. And that is to love others to Jesus through us. When we spend our time con- constantly comparing our situation in life with someone else, or trying to compete with other people, or envying other people. Not only will we never be content in life, but we are missing the very reason why we're still here on earth and not in heaven. I mean, let me remind us that we're not here on earth to compete with one another. We're not here to be the best or to have the most or to achieve the most. Or to reach the top of whatever it is we're trying to get to the top of. We're here to love and to enjoy Jesus. And to introduce others to Jesus. And change our world through him. Amen? Amen. We're not here to be successful in man's eyes. We're here to be faithful in God's eyes. Now, the implication of this aspect of God's sovereignty is this. If you're a Christ follower, then he has a mission, a purpose for you to accomplish. You may feel that what you have to offer is insignificant compared to what others do. But it's very significant to God if you'll humble yourself and just love him and make yourself available to him in whatever way that he prompts you to for his glory. A few years ago, I I read an amazing story of a pastor in London who near the end of a service uh, heard a new believer in his church testify uh, how he had come to faith in Jesus Christ. He was vacationing in Sydney, Sydney Australia and this man went on to say that while he was there he was walking down George Street and a little old white-haired man walked up to him he put a pamphlet in his hand and then he said ever so gently he said excuse me sir but I was just wondering if you were to die tonight are you certain that you would go to heaven that's all he said, and he walked away. This man who was sharing his testimony said, you know, no one had ever asked me that question. And he said, all the way home on the flight, I couldn't get that question out of my mind. And so when I got back to London, I, I called a Christian, a co-worker. And I told him the story, and, and I told him what was troubling me. And at the end of our time together, I became a Christ follower. The next week, this same pastor who had heard that testimony was in another city. He was holding special meetings. And after one of the services, a woman came up to be prayed for. And somewhere in the conversation, he asked her how she had come to know Christ. And she said, I was visiting some friends in Sydney, Australia, and doing some shopping on George Street. And a strange little white-haired man approached me and said, excuse me, ma'am, but if you were to die tonight, are you certain you would go to heaven? She, too, was troubled by those words. And when she returned home, she went to a church that was near her home. She ended up talking to the pastor, and she gave her life to Jesus Christ. While these were two individuals within a very short period of time that had been impacted by this stranger um, in Sydney. And so this pastor, a few weeks later, um, while he was speaking at a pastor's conference, he ended up telling the story. Uh, these two stories. And at the end of that particular conference, four pastors and three missionaries let him know that they too had come to faith in Jesus Christ through the impact of a little old white-haired man on George Street. Over the next three years, he ran into person after person that had been impacted by this little white-haired man. A former Hindu. A military chaplain general. And on and on the list went. Well, about three years later, he was actually in Sydney, Australia himself, doing meetings in a church there. And... He asked the pastor if the pastor knew about this um, elderly white-haired man who was witnessing and handing out tracts on George Street. And the pastor immediately said, oh yes, and told him his name. And so this London pastor went to visit this frail and elderly man in his little apartment. And after the man had made them some tea the London pastor proceeded to tell him of the testimonies he had heard the previous three years of what was now hundreds of lives that had been impacted through his ministry over the years. The little man sat there with tears streaming down his face. And then he said, you know, when I met Jesus Christ, my life was a total mess. He changed my life so dramatically that, and I was so grateful that I promised him that I would share Jesus every day as long as he gave me the strength. Since there are hundreds of people that walk on George Street, he says, for the last 40 years I've sought to be faithful in this And even though I get mostly rejections, there are others who take the tracks. But I've got to tell you, in the 40 years, of after 40 years of doing this, I have never heard of a single person coming to Jesus Christ until today. Isn't that amazing? Here was a man... Here was a man who saw no results, who probably figured in time that he was wasting his time. But you see, his love and his gratitude to Jesus was so great that he gave what little he had. And unbeknown to him, God worked in and then forever changed the eternal trajectories of Of countless lives. People who briefly encountered a little old man with white hair on George Street. You may feel that your talents, you may feel that your acts of service just don't make any difference. You may feel, as I said a moment ago, that you have nothing to offer the Lord. But God promises in 1 Corinthians 15 that anything we do. For the Lord in his name is not in vain. In fact, Acts 17 verse 26 says, God has even determined the times and the place where we should live. And then it goes on to say why. So that through us, and perhaps through a small group of friends that meet together in a community people would reach out to Jesus and find him. He may use you to impact hundreds. He may use you to impact only a few or perhaps even just one person. But I want to challenge you to get out of the bleachers and into the action. Align your life and your plans with the Lord's and bloom where you're planted for Jesus' sake and for Jesus' sake alone. Thirdly, God's sovereignty means that we have a measure of freedom. In Romans 9, verse 19, the Apostle Paul says, One of you say to me, then why does God still blame us? For who resists his will? And what this loaded question is really asking is, if God is in control, then do I even have a choice? Is there really any freedom? Of course there's freedom. God does not consider us his puppets or his slaves. Genesis 1.27 says, God made us in his image, which among other things includes the ability to create and the ability to make decisions, including loving our Lord from the heart rather than as a sense of duty. However, we do not have total freedom. Only God has total freedom. In this life, there are boundaries or there are parameters of which You cannot go beyond. For example, to help us to understand what this means, when you board a cruise ship to sail to the Bahamas. Now, I don't want to lose you, okay? Don't get too fixated on that image, all right? All right, but you're on this cruise ship, you're on your way to the Bahamas, you're given many freedoms. You can suntan, you can go swimming in one of the pools. You can sleep and you can do what most people do on cruises and that is eat without ceasing. (laughs) You can play shuffleboard on the first deck. You can sightsee on the 12th deck and do any number of things on the decks in between. You have a lot of freedom on one of those love boats. But there is nothing you can do to alter the ultimate destination of that ship. Well, our life on planet Earth is little different. We are given lots of freedom. But God warns us that in this life we reap what we sow. And he warns us that in the end we will all come to a destination. We will come to the grave. At which point we are going to have to give an account before God for the decisions we made in this life. We can live any way that we want to, but there is no changing God's purposes, his plans, or his principles. Proverbs 19 verse 21 says, Many are the plans in a man's heart, but it is the Lord's purpose that prevails. So what are the implications of this truth? Well, first of all, even though God's in control, our obedience makes a difference. Some people use God's sovereignty to justify apathy in their lives. They say, you know, God's plans are already in place. You know, he he doesn't need me. And so they just kind of sit by and, you know, God's going to do it all. I am just going to sit here and watch the grass grow. The worms yawn. Now, it's true. He doesn't need any of us to accomplish his purpose. But as I mentioned a moment ago, he has chosen to involve us in his kingdom purposes. And if we align our plans with his purposes and we step out and obey him, he will use us in a small way or in a significant way to make an eternal impact in some way. Now a second implication is this. Even though God is in control, our prayers make a difference. It's not a waste of time to pray. You see, when people contemplate the fact that God is sovereign, that he's in control, they wonder, well, what good is prayer? I mean, if God does as he pleases, why pray? The root issue underlying this question is really this. How can God be truly sovereign and man be truly free? Well, the Bible teaches that both are true. God is sovereign, but man also has a measure of freedom. Though God is sovereign and can do whatever he pleases, he has chosen to respect the free will of man and and, and um, to accomplish his plans and his purposes through us. In fact, it's for this very reason that, that prayer is so important. For reasons only God knows he has chosen to involve us us through our obedience, but also through our prayers. Let me give you an example uh, of why prayer is so important. Um, I read this in an article so many years ago that I can't even remember where the article was or who the author was, but it had a profound impact on um, on my understanding of why prayer is important. If you if, just turn in your Bibles to Ezekiel chapter 20, uh, thirty-six, verse twenty-four, God says to the nation of Israel. He's, it says there, "For I will take you from the nations, gather you from all the lands, and bring you into your own land." This is referring, of course, to um, the people of Israel being drawn back to their homeland, and and the prophecy around that. But then down in verse 36, God adds this. I, the Lord, have spoken and will do it. In other words, this is God's will. There it is in black and white. It says, uh, God says, I will do it. However, notice in the very next verse, in verse 37, that God adds this. This also, I will let the house of Israel ask me to do for them. Ask me to do for them. In effect, God is saying, my will is to do these things. But not until you exercise prayer and ask me. You see, prayer generally does not change the mind of God. He is sovereign and his plans are already in place. Prayer simply opens the door for God's will to take place. He's saying, I want to involve you in my kingdom work through prayer. The same principle is found in James chapter 4. It says there, you do not have. Why? Because you do not ask. Therefore, we must pray confidently. We must pray consistently, believing that our prayers make a difference. That's why we pray about everything around here, in our homes, in our small groups, in our staff meetings, in our ministries, through concerts of prayer, in our services, because we believe that to the core of our being that our prayers make a difference. Now let me be clear, God doesn't need our prayers. He's all-powerful. He can do as he pleases. He's absolutely sovereign in control. Our prayers don't control him in any way. And I am not suggesting that, if you're thinking that. Our prayers don't control God. But for reasons, as I've already said, only God knows, He's chosen to involve us through our prayers, so our prayers do make a difference. We are not pawns on some great chessboard of life to be moved about by forces over which we have no control. No, we're working together with God In the implementation of his holy will. And so the upshot of this is, folks, we need to pray. We need to have a lifestyle of prayer. God wants us to come to him in prayer. You see it all the way through the scriptures where he asks us constantly to come to him, to come to him. To talk to him throughout our day. And ask him freely about whatever it is we need to be who he wants us to be and to do what he wants us to do. Now people ask, so why doesn't God always give me what I ask for? Because he's in control. And you need to thank him for being in control. He sees the whole picture. He knows what's best for you and for me. And he also knows what will forward his kingdom purposes and what won't. If God said yes to every one of our prayers, it would ruin us. I mean, we'd be filled with pride. We'd be walking around showing off our power, you know. Oh, you want a new car? Oh, you want a new house? Well, just let me pray. Oh, Lord. Oh, there it is. Thank you, Jesus. If God said yes to every prayer, our world would be a mess. I mean, the sump pump guy, you know, he's praying for rain. The guy on the beach, he's praying for sunshine. The farmer, he pleads, Lord, please, no hail, no hail. The roofer's going, Lord, pour it on. The flame, a flames fan, he prays for the flames victory. An Oilers fan, well... But you see the dilemma we put God in, right? Well, this kind of reminds me of the pastor who was walking through the woods and he was attacked by a bear. So this bear had him in his grasp and he was about to have him for lunch when the pastor cries out and says, Oh God, I have only one final request. Please make this bear a Christian. All of a sudden the bear let go of him and Bear's whole demeanor changed. And you could tell he'd become a Christian. And he looked up at heaven and brought his paws together and said, Oh, Lord, I ask that you would now bless this food that I'm about to partake of. <laughs> you see, it's silly to think that, that God should answer all of our prayers. The reality is, because we don't have total knowledge of God or, or of God's heart or of God's ways. At times we don't pray for the right things. At times we pray with wrong motives. That's why it's so important that we know God, that we know his word, because the more we do, the more our prayers will actually be in sync with the will and the heart of God. But even if we aren't clear on exactly how we should pray, Please understand this and get this. Even if we aren't sure how we should pray. Even if we feel we don't have enough faith to pray. Or we feel unworthy to pray. Or we feel inadequate to pray. Just pray anyways. Because God is pleased. When we humble ourselves, acknowledge our need of Him, and come to Him in prayer. I mean, I think the greatest sin we commit uh, in terms of prayer is that we just don't pray. I mean, the enemy will give you 101 excuses right now to stop praying. And I'm not saying there aren't things that we need to clean up in our lives, and things we need to confess, and all kinds of stuff before we go to prayer. That's not the issue. Just pray anyways. And don't let masters of, you know, the technicians of prayer convince you you're not praying right. And you ought to do this. And oh, well, you're not going to get an answer because you're not doing it right. Just pray. He knows your heart. And you know, even if in his wisdom, God in his sovereignty says No. Or God says, wait. We can find peace in knowing that God knows what's best. In Matthew 7, Jesus said, Which of you, if his son asks for bread, will give him a stone? If you then know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give good gifts, gifts to those who ask him? Now, this passage has been, in my view, misinterpreted greatly by some teachers. I mean, what is Jesus saying here? Jesus is saying here, just like good fathers on earth want what's best for their kids. Do you hear that? I mean, do you want, if, you, if you're a loving dad, do you want to give your child a gift that will harm that child? Do you want to give your child a gift that will actually um, long-term hurt that child. Even though the child will, at this point in time, will say, this is great, dad. No. If you really care about that child, you're going to give the gift of that that child, that will be best for that child. Even though that child may look back at you and say, what? I wanted this and you give me this. And you see, that's where the problem is. Because a lot of times, that's how we respond to God. We don't always see God's answer as the good gift. Because in our mind, we've got an idea of what the good gift should be. But can we trust him enough that one day we will understand and see it as a good gift? Can we trust him enough to not grow bitter but to believe that he loves us and has our best interest at heart in all things and to keep praying and to keep trusting him no matter what it is we're facing? Now I know these things are easily said. They may, and may sound rather hollow when, you're, when your life is spinning out of control. But I want to tell you from my own experience of battling with a life-threatening illness in my life That even though God does not always give us what we ask. And even though he does not always give reasons or answers for what we're going through. He does give us himself. And there is no greater gift. There is no greater source of peace to be found. Than getting up into the lap of my heavenly father. And hearing him say through his word. I love you more than you will ever know. Hearing him say, I'm in control. I make no mistakes. My way is perfect. I have your best interest at heart. And you can trust me to never leave you or forsake you. And you can trust me in knowing that one day you are going to fully understand why things are the way they are, and why my gift to you, even though you may not have thought it was good, is truly good. You will know, then, that I am not only sovereign, but I am good. You know, the more I grow in my understanding of the sovereignty of God, the more I see why at times I am full of tension and anxiety. And it's because I'm trying to live under two agendas, my agenda and God's agenda. You see, my agenda is my attempt to control the direction of my life. It's me saying to God, God, I have a plan. And and I know what's best for me. Please don't mess with my plan. When I live for God's agenda only, I surrender my life to him and seek to please him only. Because I believe that he is in control and that he is for me. I believe there's nothing that comes into my life that he isn't aware of or allows. And I see the storms of life, the tough times, as God working out his purposes in my life and conforming me to the image of his son, Jesus. A little over a month ago, my mother's health began to deteriorate quite rapidly. And even though on Monday when we visited her in the hospital, we wondered if she was going to rally again as she had in the past. But I got a call from my sisters late Friday night informing me that my mother had gone to be with the Lord. And we rejoice that she is with us her Savior. I want to pay tribute to her for a moment because um, you're our extended family. But also because there are few people who embraced the sovereignty of God like she did. My mother was a simple person. She lived a very simple life. But she had a great faith in God and in the sovereignty of God. She was one of the most gentle, kind, gracious, and unselfish people that I've ever known. Even though she had a very hard life, faced many devastating losses and disappointments, including a painful separation and then divorce from our father. And even though she lived alone for the last 35 years on a a very meager income and experienced little of the things most of us crave to experience in this life. I can honestly say that I never heard her complain or grumble once. And I know at funerals, you know, people say, well, he never did this or he always did that, whatever. And usually it's a bit stretched, but I'm serious when I say I never heard her complain or grumble. She possessed the contentment that made absolutely no sense from a human point of view. No sense at all. Other than she had this deep, settled confidence that she was loved by God. That he was completely trustworthy and that his way was best. But her greatest gift to me and to the rest of our family was her prayer life. I can hardly remember a conversation with her when she didn't talk about her friend Jesus as if she just had lunch with him an hour earlier. There was hardly a time when she didn't remind me that she was praying for me or for our family. She was my greatest prayer warrior. And I will miss her. In... In her simple and in her unique way, um, she's impacted my life like few others have. You know, outside of our immediate family, my mom wasn't known by very many people. Um, she didn't achieve great rewards, awards. She wasn't successful in business. She wasn't the top of her field. She didn't have much stuff, I can tell you that. But as I told our family yesterday, you know, when we get to heaven, I think we're going to be shocked at how our lives were blessed and how our lives were used by God to impact others so much more powerfully because we had a mom and a grandmother who loved Jesus with all of her heart, and who committed her life to praying for us. About 15 years ago, I wrote up a tribute for my dad and my mom, and after I'd done so, I went down to Medicine Hat, and I met with them individually, and I I read it to them. And part of what I included in my tribute to my mom was this. Thank you, Mom, for faithfully praying for us. Your walk with God, though a quiet faith, has been a real testimony to me and a source of personal comfort. I believe that I'm seeing such fruit in my ministry because I have a mother who prays for me faithfully. Thank you, Mom, for this most important ministry. This most important ministry I thank you for the precious gift that you passed on to us in Jesus Christ thank you for reflecting his love to us through your life there's no greater gift that you can pass on to your children I thank God for giving me you as a mom in his sovereignty he used you to shape me into the person that he wants me to be And even now, he is using you to partner with me in ministry through your prayers. I love you, Mom. I want you to know that I am blessed to call you, Mom. And I share that with you not only as a tribute to my mom, but to remind all of us through her very simple life, What's really going to matter in the end? And that true peace and contentment is found in resting in the sovereignty of God. May it be so in each of our lives to the glory of God and for the sake of a world that needs our Jesus. Would you stand with me for closing prayer? You know, in our culture, we tend to exalt and we tend to celebrate the lives of those who, who made a lot, who have a lot, who achieved a lot, which is fine, except we can be deceived by this, because you see, we can give our lives to that which impresses and that which receives the applause of people, and we can drift from investing our lives in the eternal things of God if you're experiencing a lot of anxiety and stress and frustration and even joylessness, is it because you're striving after the applause of people rather than the applause of God? Is it because you're striving to achieve your plans rather than resting in the sovereignty of God? When you get to the end of your life, Do you want people to remember your endless striving? To win the applause of people? Or do you want them to remember you as someone who loved and enjoyed Jesus? Someone who lived for Jesus and gave his or her life away in love for others. Someone who possessed a deep peace and contentment. Because their trust was in God and God alone my mother lived like that and now that she's gone it's teaching me something like nothing else I wish that for you I wish that for all of us so with every head bowed and all eyes closed if God's speaking to you and you know you need to respond to him in some tangible way I'm going to ask you as I have before to slip out of your seat right now make your way up here and spend some time making your peace with God we're just going to wait a moment we're going to pray quietly for a moment while you respond to God's call come just as you are and make your peace with him. Heavenly Father, what a privilege it is to call you Lord and Master. What a joy it is to know that you're able to, to keep and to do wonderful things through all that we commit to you. Oh, what peace we often forfeit. Oh, what needless pain we bear. All because we resist giving everything to you. Whatever people are facing in their lives, I pray that today will be the day they let go of their agendas, their endless striving, their bitterness, their anger toward you or toward others. And instead, Lord, they will crawl up into your lap knowing that you love them, that you're in control, and that you are for them in every way for I pray it in the precious name of Jesus. And now may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you his precious peace. In the name of God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit.